previously on Two Star Two Trek. Honestly, yeah, like everybody needs Janeway in like a glass box that you break in case of emergency. (laughs) I've only seen five episodes of this, but she's fantastic and she can save the day anytime. Like she's just on her shit all the time. Greetings, friends and fellow Trekkies. Welcome to Two Star Two Trek. We are deep in Voyager discussing tonight Dark Frontier, Season 5, Episodes 15 and 16. We learn about all the shapes that the Borg know. (laughs) (laughs) All the shapes, all one color. Yeah, roughly, yeah. (laughs) But all the shapes for sure. My name is Ryan. I am your host. I am joined by my lovely co-host, Caitlin. And two fantastic guests this evening. Of one mind, we have both Michael and Forrest joining our collective. Michael, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing pretty well. I've got my nice passion tea. It's all hibiscusy. It's very tasty. I recommend it. And I'm ready to talk about the collective. Tea is always a good option. Forrest, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. I just finished off a purple energy, or not energy, a purple sports drink of brand that will remain a mystery until we get a sponsorship. Uh, also... <laughs> I'm disappointed in the Borg and their shapes because I wish the Borg had had a pyramid so they could have remade the UPN logo. Ooh, Ooh. nice. Yes. Uh, So Dark Frontier is all about the Borg. Uh, Janeway has this crazy, crazy plan to steal a transwarp coil. It's a pretty good plan, actually. To shave off some time getting home and... She's it, like, look, we've screwed around for like two extra years, like helping people and saving <laughs> things. And like, it's time to get ours. And I appreciate that about her. <laughs> it's great. I love seeing Jameway in like command mode, like go mode. She's got a clear objective. She's ready to go. And she's like a little too giddy about them accidentally blowing up a board cube. Well, not even a little cube, a little scout ship. I love the idea of Voyager just picking on random Borg scout ships. Like, hey, look, it's the (laughs) Borg. Let's blow them up. Oh, well, accidentally blew them up again. Yeah, one of the big criticisms with Voyager is that they introduced the Borg and then immediately kind of toned them down. And this is where you definitely see that. Why do you say that? How do you say they toned them down? Um, so in TNG, one cube was enough to fight the entire Federation. But here, yeah. one Intrepid-class starship that's been like limping through this section of the galaxy can take out two, three, even four Borg ships. Well, to be fair to Voyager, they only limp in like the second third of an episode and then everything's wrapped up nicely and they're back to full power in the next episode. And they've but... assimilated <laughs> other technologies into their own, thus... Right, but the ship the never actually changes, so you know we don't actually know what's going on in there. Yeah, it's the Borg are like more... They're, they, have, they have this just different tone and part of it's that the mystery is being you know removed from the Borg and this episode even focuses a little bit on like early Borg studies uh, Borg anthropologists if you will but I think it's partially the uh, just kind of 
when you bring when you start seeing the Borg every week, they lose some of their mystique, and it becomes a little bit easier to pick them apart. But at the same time, I don't really see Picard just beaming torpedoes into Borg ships and blowing them up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this I believe is after, and I know it's kind of like you know it's made up nonsense, but everything on Star Trek is to a certain extent, you know where they have the the developed like Borg adaptive shielding or they that they had built some kind of shielding for Voyager that was like specifically made for this stuff. Well, and that's this episode. Oh, that was when they got this. Yeah. Okay. Cuz that that's all in the Hansen's research and everything like that. Right, right. Cuz yeah, it it started with adaptive lasers, phasers, like torpedoes. the randomized like, right. you know, shooty shooty. Which I've never really understood why the Borg are just like, oh no, they've adapted. Because, like, random integers are random. And I don't know, like, the randomness does not compute with, oh, they've adapted and their shields work. Because if you're pulling the trigger, shouldn't it be different every time? So, I actually, I actually kind of know the answer to this. Go! Typically, phasers work within specific, like, wavelength frequencies. And the Borg shielding seems to block out a specific, like, band of frequencies. And that oh, band okay. will change. And they can change it, so you just modulate. It's actually really dumb of the Borg. I don't know why they never thought to build just, like, broadband shielding. They're still using dial-up shielding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Borg aren't 5G. Um, well, and the Borg don't get to be 5G. You know, there was a great episode a few before this uh, where... Seven accidentally assimilates the doctor's mobile emitter and there's genetic... T- I don't know. But we get like a 29th century Borg who is a total badass and like completely awesome and has like multi-temporal phasic shields and takes on a whole sphere by himself, which is which is really cool. But yes, the current Borg are dumb because they haven't assimilated anything smart enough, I guess. Kind of goes back to the whole Species 8472 debacle where they can't assimilate it, therefore cannot learn. There's actually a really, I just thought of this, there's a really interesting reason why that would be the case. The Borg are in something like a Dark Age, because they've already beaten all of the powerful enemies around them. Now they're just left with stuff like the Kazon. They've already beaten and assimilated all the smart people, so now they're just left with the dorks and jocks, right? There's nothing left for them to take into the fold. It's kind of like the feedback loop of why the Borg aren't really progressing the way they should. Yeah, and the Kazon specifically rejected from the Collective, right? as Southern notes at one point. Well, and I think what's interesting, you know, I think we were talking a little off mic about, like, why does the Borg Queen want Seven so badly? And I think this plays into why that's the case, even though on its surface it's very silly that, you know, they want this individual running around. Kind of like in the last two-parter we were talking about, they need, like, this injection of, like, something else into the system so that the Borg advance and become more cunning and using like human emotion and human frailty as like almost like a sounding board not something that's directly impacting all of the hive's decisions but with some gives them a a glimpse into like what they could be doing yeah very midsummer we need your dna to help you know, yeah, yeah. diversify the flock. Or you whatever. put her in the bear and then you set her on fire and it's a whole thing. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very interesting with Seven of Nine because, you know, we, we've we 
talked multiple times um, on this show about how Star Trek is really good dealing with, you know, dualities, be it, you know, Worf or Garrick or, you know, an outsider trying to fit in to the greater whole of the galaxy. And then, you know, with fighting also to reconcile their heritage to some degree. And I think this is like kind of the first instance where it kind of falls flat, not because of Jerry Ryan and not because of Seven's eventual arc, but like this episode is so heavily focused on, you know, the, the ethics and the morality of assimilation and things like that, that you don't really get that like personal testament of seven that you would get in like you know some of the more focused Klingon episodes. Well, once you're realizing that even just from the get go that like she's there under duress, she's there because the board queen is like you know last Jedi skyping her through space and like telling her <laughs> basically like we know y'all's plan, like we gonna kill everyone, you know we're gonna take you back though, and so she knows she has to give herself up and like so she's not there because she's making like any kind of choice or because she's curious about what it would be like if she went back or like, you know, anything about that. She's doing it so solely under duress. So the idea that like the poor queen's like, we're going to like assimilate 300, you know, thousand people. It's going to be awesome. She knows it's not something that seven is remotely into. So there's not like a conflict really to be seen except for seven trying to get around it the whole time. Right. So it's just, it's very, it's a it's kind of an odd setup. And I think, Caitlin, you and I, when we were watching this, we watched this immediately, almost immediately following watch through of First Contact for First Contact yes. Day. And with our traditional First Contact Day salmon. Correct. <laughs> it was very good. It was good salmon. And we kind of like fell in a timeline like, but the Borg Queen dies at the end of First Contact, but now she's back in the Delta Quadrant. The internet like, tells me that it's like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. When one goes down, like, another one rises. And yeah. I don't know if that's, like, supported in any of the Apocrypha, but that seems to be the case. Yeah. And not only is it a uh, second Borg Queen, a reincarnation of the Borg Queen, however you want to style that, it's also a different actress. I'm pretty sure that in one of the one episode somewhere, it pays pays off the idea that the Borg Queen is maybe not even one individual at a time. It could be multiple mm. queens. We actually uh, we actually okay. don't know because it's never explicitly spelled out in canon. And if you think about like how insects work, there's multiple queens in quite a few species of say bees and ants. So. Yeah, That's yeah, always yeah. been the headcanon I run with, is that there's actually multiple queens. Maybe like five or six. Um, maybe like running different regions of space. Yeah. Like, or kind of conferring with each other, going where they're needed. Kind of like aircraft carriers. Um, right. Or it could just be the case that there's one conscious entity that is the Borg Queen that exists independent of a body. But she can choose to inhabit one when she desires. I kind of like that. I think that's cool. But, like, on the flip side of that, like, does every board cube just have, like, this lady's head just, like, in a room somewhere? Yeah, probably, go. probably make it. The Borg are pretty good at that stuff. That was, like, the first thing they assimilated was how to get that lady's head. 
Well, right. And yeah, I mean, the queen, I, there's a lot of fun different ideas on, on what the queen could be. You know, it could be, uh, and and some of this is even represented in this episode. Are the Borg insects? Are they, you know, ants or bees or what have you? And is that one of the reasons why the, you know, Starfleet and the Federation and Janeway treat the Borg the way they do? Uh, are the Borg wolves, which is one of the way that the the Hansons describe them. So these conflicting ideas of what the Borg are, which I think is representative of the different ways the Borg are represented throughout the all of Star Trek, is part of the fun to talk about. You know, Picard actually uh, dug into this more than any other uh, other series. Is the idea of the Queen and the Queen Cell, and how do you become Queen? How do you take over? Uh, essentially take over the hive mind. So, and there were some interesting ideas thrown in there. You know, the Borg Queen herself in First Contact has that great line to, uh, is it, it's either to Picard or Data, where um, where Picard's, it must be to Picard while she's yada, 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 you know, torturing, mind melting, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But uh, Picard's, right, exact monologuing. And she, and, you know, Picard's like, I remember you, you blew up. And she's like, ah, oh, you, think your small minds think so three-dimensionally and so it's like oh that's fun <laughs> that's cool i like the idea that there's a, a different kind of operation here but however the queen operates or like exists it's you know it's fun to have that kind of figurehead and you can understand why in first contact they needed an actual antagonist and not just borg they wanted yeah. someone to like create and and torture and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's totally natural for Voyager to run with it. However, we have to talk about our recast Borg Queen, Ha-ha. Susanna Thompson, who you recognize as... Uh, Susanna Thompson. Yes, uh, also known as Lenara Khan, Jadzia's lesbian wife. Hmm. Whoa! Whoa! Nice. Nice. So she got assimilated or <laughs> something like that. So um, I just find it uh, ever amusing that uh, uh, that she came back to it's like, yes, I will be the lesbian love interest of Jazdia Dax. And also I will be very ambiguously sexual and everything that I do and uh, interact with uh, Seven of Nine and Captain Janeway. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to touch on this again in two weeks uh, because there's another really big Borg two-parter coming up in Voyager um, called Unimatrix Zero that deals a lot more with uh, individuals and collective collectivism and things like that. I just really... The Borg Queen in this episode really feels like a presence, uh, specifically compared to her other appearances. You know, obviously... Being in a feature film, you know, pointing, saying, you know, on the poster, that's the villain. Like, you have to be able to do that for a certain degree of audience. Uh, you can't just um, build up four seasons worth of a villain in a two-hour film. So I understand why they did that for sure. But I think this is, like, really the first time we get, like, the meat and bones of what the Borg Queen is and what she's trying to do. And kind of how she goes about it. She's very manipulative. Yeah. I wonder if there's something too, you know, for all the focus on like animal organic examples that I just ran through. You know, I wonder if there's something like a, there's a computational technical side to the Borg Queen too. She's like the, 
you know, she's like the logic center. All of these thoughts, all of these sensors, all of this information's coming into, and then she's essentially feeding through it and making some kind of decision. So really, she's just some kind of really black box model that we will never understand uh, that spits out that spits out some kind of answers, um, almost like she's descended from a probe that was designed to know all that is knowable. <laughs> She also seems to divine patterns that she sees around her in a way that the, the drones themselves really don't have the capacity to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that you bring up the drones because that's a lot of where the fear of the board come from, I think. Because, I mean, multiple times throughout this, you know, not only is it like, oh, you're going to assimilate us, you're going to assimilate Voyager, it's you're going to turn me into a drone. And I think that's, like, where, quote-unquote, the fear of the Borg comes in. Well, your, your, your value is, like, extracted from your physical body, and then your physical body becomes a tool. Yeah. And there's something about that that is, is deeply unsettling, you know, in a way that makes the Borg very effective villains. Yeah. That's for damn sure. Uh, Michael, I think... Either you or Caitlin, I can't remember, brought it up before we were speaking, uh, before we hit record, about, Michael, I think you said it perfectly. You said you don't like how the Federation just treat the Borg as cannon fodder, you know? Most of their encounters, I completely understand where the Federation is coming from, because it very much is an existential threat to the entire Federation in the way that most enemies the Federation face aren't. The Romulans are a threat, but they're not really an existential threat to all of humanity. Not the way we think of. The Borg are very much an existential threat. So when a Borg cube flies into the solar system of Earth, it makes sense that we're going to throw everything we have at it. But in this episode, we start off with a photon torpedo being teleported onto a Borg ship. And they just detonate the entire thing. I find it hard to believe that we would ever treat the Romulans or Klingons or even Cardassians, as much as we hate those guys, with the same sense of malevolence. And it seems to come from the lack of identity of the Borg drone. The Borg drones have forcibly, by the Borg, their identity has been stripped from them. Since they don't have identity, we don't view them as people. And so we're more okay killing them. Or... It's that we already view their fate as so dark and so grim that we view it as putting them out of their misery. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, we see it in to, to reference First Contact again during the, the holodeck scene where, you know, Picard takes the Tommy gun and shoots down a couple Borg. Like, and it's, it's kind of this badass hero moment. And then they go up to him and he starts like extracting whatever, you know, piece of technology he needs to grab from the Borg's chest and uh, you know, his companion is like, well, that's one of your guys. He's got a badge on. He's like, yeah, this was Ensign Steve. And he's like digging into him. And it's like, oh, Jesus. Right. Like, it's a really horrifying moment that mm-hmm. like Picard so divorced himself from the fact that this was even a person anymore, but like still acknowledging it. And like, it leads into that wonderful, that wonderful Moby Dick Ahab scene uh, where she, he, he breaks his little ships. And um, poor little ships. just the idea that, you know, these were people and people have come back from being bored, but most of the time, because it's a life or death situation in most of these cases, 
um, there's not really the opportunity to bring most of them back. And it's it's that, you know, the moral dilemma of, like, what do you do with that? Because you know you, it's possible to bring them back. I think with First Contact specifically, you can kind of write it off as, like, I mean, you, you do write it off. You write it off as the Moby Dick, the Ahab, the... You know, oh, he was sight of this. He was the cutest. He's lost sight of this. He's doing whatever it takes and everything like that. But I think, you know, to Michael, to your point with Voyager, they're just kind of like going in a direction. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, here's one. Bam. Here's one. Bam. Here's one. Bam. They've kind of taken it a whole other level. One thing that Caitlin brought up with uh, kind of Locutus and Picard, though, is that in a lot of ways, especially the survivors, they really kind of are survivors of abuse, right? That's what abusers do. They take your identity away. They suppress your individuality. And that's exactly what the Borg do. So when Picard gets out, his vendetta is very personal and very human. It's Mm -hmm. very enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of connects back to these conflicting ways that the Borg are kind of conceptualized and TNG deals with this in uh, in one way and Hugh is the perfect example of this where you know Picard in first contact is like oh they're not rescuable they're not redeemable but they've already restored the individuality of a Borg in Hugh in and in, in Locutus is, is has come back as well and in Voyager seven of nine is obviously around but they don't recognize that in any other drone even once they get the borg kids you know seven and the kids uh upn's hottest sitcom they don't uh (laughs) they don't really recognize that that's a thing that can be done and in picard hughes running his own you know essentially borg rehab uh which is is a very which picard actually connects really powerfully with so i think it kind of comes back to this idea of the borg is like lesser they're insects to go back to that analysis like you know they're just annoying you squish them you blow them up with photon torpedoes and maybe the you know the borg and have a, a kind of zombie feel too um going back to kind of what you're saying ryan about the you know the mercy killing so it's these conflicting ways and right it's storytelling right every writer has their own conception of the borg but as we kind of see from the, you know, the Hansen study of them and like before the Borg were a thing, I the Borg are just such a different form of existence that Starfleet really can't, as much as the Borg don't get humanity, humanity doesn't get the Borg either. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good point. Also, the Hansons, the oh, they worst suck. parents yeah, they're the worst. space. <laughs> oh, wait, no, not those Hansons. Oh, the other Hansons no. are even worse. Federation Child Protective Services on their asses because what the <laughs> hell are they doing? Like my God! Well, like so, let's let's talk about the Hansons. They have a ship, what four decks, the size of the Defiant or something, loaded yeah. with cargo bays and rec rooms. Like the schematic of that ship is like, how are three people, <laughs> two of them being adults and one child, actually operating this space? Um, and then running through the Beta Quadrant with a kid? You don't think that's a good idea? Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> she should see space get some miles on her legs i mean yeah. she got some miles on her well, like, yeah. yeah so does everybody remember in tng when Worf has a son and he's like man i can't take this son with me on my space journeys i need to leave him somewhere stable 
are you really telling me that Annika right? didn't have a godfather or a godmother somewhere that could just be like, hey, we need you to watch Annika for a few years. We're going on this super dangerous mission. We may not come back. Yeah, yeah. instead they're like, no, 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 because if we don't take her with us, then we're going to ruin Star Trek Voyager, and we can't do that. <laughs> no, they're like the people who bring the baby in the baby Bjorn to, like, the beer festival. Right. And you're like, why is this baby at this beer festival? And they're like, I can do anything the same, just like before I was a parent. And then they spill like an IPA on the baby and you're like, there's a lot happening here. I just need to get some beer on my own. The baby needs experiences too. This is good for the baby. The baby wants to be here. The decibel level's fine. (laughs) Yeah, why why is she not in space school? Or whatever, right? right? I mean, she could go to to freaking you know Keiko O'Brien's school that gets blown up every Tuesday. Yes, Keiko <laughs> O'Brien's school of religious terrorism. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good fit. It's a good fit. But no, like you no know less traumatic. <laughs> you're right. If trauma's what you're after, Keiko O'Brien's she school is right for you. From like learning how to play Dabo. Right. <laughs> so what's really unfortunate to me about all of this is that it's all fairly solvable. Uh, so the Hansons, their entire mission is like, oh, we've heard of these strange cybernetic beings. We're going to go investigate them. Well, that ruins Star Trek, Star Trek continuity. Them bringing their kid with them is so selfish and stupid that it's unbelievable. But what if, instead of everything that the show gave us as the Hansons' motivations, what if instead they were just trying to explore... The Delta Quadrant. Right. right. Just have it just, like, be an accident instead of... Yeah, the Borg are out there. Like, playing with fire. Right. Instead of actively flying towards the Borg, not knowing what the hell they're dealing with, they could have just been, like, explorers. The episode is called Dark Frontier. It would have fit. They could have just been like, oh, man, we really want to go check out the Delta Quadrant. We want to be the first humans to make contact with whatever's out there. We're going to bring our daughter, because that would be such an amazing experience for her that we can't possibly leave her out we have this deal with the romulans we're pretty okay and then everything unfolds the way it does so i think so what works what makes this i don't actually have any problems with them chasing the borg shadows past the beta quadrant and the reason is gynan because it all comes back to gynan for me because Uh-oh. remember that when the when Q flips them into the wherever, Picard's like, "Hey, Guinan, your people have been out here. What's going on?" And she's like, "Um, run away, run away fast. Not only is Q here, you're about to find the Borg." So I understand rumors of the Borg. It totally makes sense if the Elarians have already been essentially decimated by the Borg. If the Borg, you know, the Borg pick off Romulan stuff, not that the Romulans are going to tell us anything, but stories happen. So I, I get rumors of this cybernetic super race out there in space causing trouble. Yeah. And it, I think it connects with that humans don't get the Borg. Oh, how could that be a real thing? We know about it. We're smart scientists, bipedal apes. How <laughs> dare you, you know... Uh, say there's something out there we don't understand. So I think that partially I can I can get like human just blinders preventing them from believing the Borg exists. And I can also get crazy humans being like, you know what? I bet those are real and we're going to take our little kid to go meet them. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go off the grid, guys, and we're going to meet Bigfoot. <laughs> but this Bigfoot 
has a flying fortress made of Lego bricks. Yeah, it's more of a chupacabra situation. (laughs) But, I mean, I can totally see, I mean, you know, like, we were talking about a little off mic about how, (laughs) you know, the rumors of the Borg, especially with the Elorians and other civilizations that may have, like, scurried their way into the Alpha Quadrant over the years, but the fact that, like, Starfleet intelligence never really seems to know what the (laughs) fuck is going on, so ultimately, like, anything could be true, it just hasn't made its way to, like, people like Picard yet. It's just, it's wild that, like, this sets up a whole series of, and I am willing to suspend my disbelief, but also if we're going off of, like, the strict interpretation that the Federation became aware of the Borg and Q-Who, the fact that the Hansons were doing this presumably 20-something years prior to that is absolutely wild and raises the question for me of how old is Seven of Nine, for, though. Like, I, I don't know, because she's supposed to be, like, six years old at the time, but if you can, you know say she was in the maturation chambers, which later in the same series they show they do with small children. They don't just, like, have tiny little, like, Dakota Fanning-sized drones running around. Actually, all the drones are Dakota Fanning. (laughs) Could you... Would you rather fight one gigantic Borg or ten Dakota Fanning-sized Borg? (laughs) Um, But, like, ultimately, like... their own canon that they've set up like again in the very like Star Trek angry nerd way I'm like this doesn't make any sense to me was she in a maturation chamber they just lied to her about how old she is so like she's a poor historian or like is there something else going on here where she was actually like part of this expedition that was like 20 years predating the Federation officially having knowledge of the Borg it just it blows my mind or is there, like, time travel shenanigans somewhere? Or is she obfuscating the truth and not giving us the whole story? Again, like, poor historian, but intentionally. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The questions about Seven's age are very, very odd. Yeah, What what is the concern? Because, like, on Raven, she's, like, ten, maybe nine. That was, like, twenty years ago. So now she would be twenty-nine, thirty. That seems to track. What's the, uh... Well, so... The way it breaks down, though, is... The Federation technically has only known about the Borg for, like, eight years, maybe, right? Like, six to eight years ago in Stardates? Right, but right. Even, in, so... even in TNG, they reference the Raven as having gone out there to meet the Borg, like, years prior. Right, so the the okay. um, Q-Who um, would have been... Q-Who? Uh... Q-Who? Hugh is um in twenty three sixty five right, and then Voyager is twenty three seventy something seventy two seventy three. So it's been almost ten years since, and we know this. This timeline's easy because it's just the years of the show. So Q Who was the second right. season of TNG. We pick up Seven of Nine in the fourth season of Voyager, and that's, you know, there's a whole right. Deep Space Nine in there, um, almost. So, <laughs> uh, so we're, we're about, yeah, we're a little, almost ten years past that. So, if she was assimilated as a, uh, let's see. Like six, seven, eight, nine, like somewhere in there. So like, th- definitely preteen. Right, so then she would have, that would have been like the mid-2350s. So, she would have been, that's about 20 years you know, six to ten, you can't really get her age rage on her. That would make her, like, in her upper 20s, late 30s. I think that tracks. I think that tracks. 
Yeah, my concern is more, how did the Hansons know to go looking for these things? It's the Elarians. Right, that's, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, honestly, that's the part where I'm like, is there Apocrypha that, like, kind of details? It's not, it's not even Apocrypha, I don't think. So the Elarians, we know from Star Trek Generations, were rescued by Kirk and company at the beginning of Star Trek Generations on the Enterprise B. The Enterprise B was launched after the Enterprise A was wiped out uh, in Undiscovered Country, uh, which would have been, uh, uh, when was start with, uh, Grandpa Wharf, and that would have been... <laughs> Grandpa Wharf. It is, it's Grandpa <laughs> Wharf, I'm not lying to you. Um, so, I know, it's like, kind of like Cranky Kong versus Donkey right. Kong, though. Exactly. <laughs> like, that's the image I get. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have been, like, the 20, that would have been the late 2290s, because we have a whole Enterprise C to fit in there. And then Scotty, well, Scotty's in a transporter beam, but McCoy's our link there. So we know how old McCoy is because he has aged in normal time, as has Spock and Sarek. So, and those guys are still hanging around in Next Generation. So it's about like 60, 70 years after the Elorians. The Elorians were decimated by the Borg. We know that. 60 or 70 years is plenty of time for the race of listeners to do a little talking and for things to write. You could imagine, just like we saw that Elarian guy in DS9, uh, you know, uh, skeeve his way into the luck machine that he replicates, which is just hilarious. <laughs> Deep Space Nine nonsense. I want this thing, but make it bigger. Okay. Anyway, so if there's 60 years of at least clear contact with a refugee race who was decimated by the Borg. I think that's enough time for rumors to fly around, to hear some things. I heard a thing from a guy who heard a Romulan, who heard of this, who heard of that. Um, And if you're crazy and have your own giant spaceship, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what's what's the grant funding that, you know, financed this ship? Like, Jesus Christ. I need one of those grants. Yeah. I was just saying, like, never mind the fact that Picard has one of these... Elarians are in ten forward. Right. Nobody on Enterprise has heard of right. these guys. Like, like the the real the the fact of the matter is that the the Star Trek writers fucked up, and we can come right. up with ways to fix it that make it kind of work. But the reality is they screwed up the timeline. They messed it up. That's fine. I don't think so. I don't. I don't, I disagree. I think that it. I think it works. I really think it works. Because like Guinan's only been on ten fo- in ten forward for part of a season by then, and who's going to go up to the bartender and be like, "So, tell me about the great tragedy that bef- befell your entire race." Let's I mean, that's what happened with uh, Darth Plagueis, right? Right. Tell me the story <laughs> yeah. of Darth Plagueis the Wise. <laughs> I think it's interesting that for all, like, the cultural diversity and, like, celebrations of people's heritage that they do on TNG all the time, they, like, just kind of let Guinan be mysterious Well, for, like, eight years. That's not the kind of story a Jedi would tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's probably what... Guinan is a Jedi. Yes. That's, that's... I mean, that's, that's probably... That's why Q is so for afraid of her. The, the other... well, that's why yeah she does like Palpatine hands at him she does and I've always like that is one of my favorite parts of that whole of that episode so two favorite parts of that episode because this is now just regale stories of the board I love her magic hands at Q like there is something so f- high fantasy about that in my Star Trek that just makes me so happy second Guinan's office 
why does the bartender have an office? <laughs> like, like in a really, cashless society. In a, in a cashless where she society. doesn't have to balance the books or check time cards. No. Why does Guinan have an office? It's like, Guinan, can you get on she's, your office computer? She's got to book all the culture nights on the, uh, on the Enterprise, you know? <laughs> Just loading up the karaoke machine. <laughs> that's where she keeps the actual liquor she's gotta work the mixer <laughs> the real liquor yes the that uh well yeah well no data finds right. is it data no data finds it behind the bar when scotty shows up mm-hmm. in relics yep. so data knows mm-hmm. well because Guinan legitimately tries to get i think data drunk at one point like she she goes for it this is well this is <sighs> it sounds like you hate it yes i hate this would you like more <laughs> absolutely <laughs> See, I, I I don't know. I love the Borg. I love Guinan. I love all of it. It's great. But in theory, this is a podcast about a Star Trek Voyager two-part episode. Yeah, about the yeah. Dark Frontier. Yeah, it's... Can, can we talk about one of my favorite parts of the episode? Yes. And this is skipping ahead a bit, but when Janeway shows up, just like, boom, I'm in the, the, the Queen's chamber and I've got my freaking giant Voyager rifle, and she's like, Yo, I got missiles pointed at this room. We all going down together. So are we going to talk or are we all going down? And like, literally, she is not fucking around. Like, even Tom Paris is like, I'm uncomfortable doing this. And she's like, shut up, Tom Paris. <laughs> it's so good. Well, there's also just a, so right before that, there's a part where the Delta Flyer, like it's bumpy and the EMH throws massive shade at Tom Paris, right? He's like, I believe the words she used were smooth and, and Tom Ferris gives him that look like you little piece of shit <laughs> listen organic meatbag my photons are getting all messed up so why don't you steady this thing down before it comes slapping right? across the face but what amazes me is that the queen backs down she doesn't call the bluff or let them blow it up or anything she's just like oh crap I'm like why you don't care about the <laughs> I know. the 300 Borg drones around you. They're not important. You can get a new body. We just saw you load into one. <laughs> right? I like the I like the queen's ship. Like the little uh, is it what is it? It's not a tetrahedron. Dodecahedron? Do uh eight sides. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Octahedron. Octahedron. Yeah. Yeah, Dodeca is twelve. Yep, that's that's yeah. four to octahedron. Less. Yeah, octahedron. It's a good word. Well, and you know, the, in uh, one of my favorite games of all time, Star Trek Armada Two, uh, there's not only the cube, but there's the hypercube, which is eight cubes fused together. <laughs> oh my god! No. So so it's it's a Rubik's cube, but it's just multiple board cubes. It's eight a bo- board well, cubes. A Rubik's cube is like twelve cubes right well yeah because there's a cube on there's nine cubes on each side so a rubik's cube <laughs> is 27 cubes all together but no it's it's eight cubes that change into one cube and it's then a hypercube and they're a lot of fun and then there what are, makes a hypercube better than a regular pork there's eight of them there's eight of them when i was they, when I was, they've uh, gotten the cells made of pork cubes. they've gotten the cells made of no <laughs> spheres right it's gotta be little spheres so Jesus. when i was a kid i asked my mom why do they build their ships like that talking about the board cube because i was like so fascinated with it and i was like why do they do that and her response to me was well that way it takes up them as much space as possible. 
And I'm just stuck with that as my head cannon for why the Borg built their ships that way. It takes up as much Genius. space as possible. Well, and I assume because they're not planet-based, there's not, like, a Borg planet, so, like, they're doing everything in space. They don't have to design their ships around, like, really spending any significant amount of time on the surface, right? Right, so, they, they don't have a tin Ford with an office. Right, right. Right, but they also don't have to worry about separating the saucer so they can crash it into stuff. Right, yeah, it's it totally makes sense when you think of a race that is um, built for efficiency and doesn't care about aerodynamics, so... Because um, there are no aerodynamics in space, so cube. Um, yeah. I want to correct myself. It's a fusion cube, not a hypercube. A hypercube <laughs> is a four-dimensional cube, right. which the Borg have in the comics. So oh, that's cool. You know. Fair enough. Yeah, hypercube's a cube within a cube. It's very, and there are hyper Rubik's cubes too. So if you want to play four-dimensional Rubik's cubes, they're out there on the internet. <laughs> Interesting. I always equated it to like. I don't know, like, the Borg in general have, like, a very 90s aesthetic of what, like, the machine uprising is to me. You know, like, it, it kind of reminds me of Terminator almost, you know? Like, it's it's kind of got the same vibes. But to me, like, with it in space and everything, the reason all of their ships are just shapes is because, like... Computers are all mathematic, right? Which is why drones don't matter, because you just, it's just minus one on your tick list or plus one on your tick list, you know? And to me, it, it always came down to, like, geometry, as far as, like, my interpretation, which is why you get, like, spear, spheres and fusion cubes and cubes and octahedrons and things like that. That's how I rationalized it. I mean, I always just did it because the Borg aren't exactly hiring graphic designers. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Correct. That graphic too. design is my passion. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're not assimilating aesthetic knowledge. It's right. Function. Function, function, function. Yeah, all function all the time. No hydroponics bay. That's for damn sure. You know, everybody just gets their... No Captain Proton on the board. <laughs> yeah. The, do you think the Borg have a holodeck? For, like, training? Absolutely Like, how not. do the Borg train? They don't. I mean, I would assume that would be in their, like, um... Their little little rest chambers. They would do like their their resequencing of like you know their their defragging boxes. You I, know? I that's how they learn kung fu. <laughs> mm-hmm. That makes so much more sense. What do you think happens if they assimilate Neelix? Well, they have assimilated Talaxians, so they but they might be done. They have Neelix at one point in a early seven episode was like. What's up, girl? And Seven's like, you're a Talaxian, we've assimilated you. And Neelix is like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go cry in a corner now for eight episodes. <laughs> um, and make bad soup. But yeah, and it kind of comes back to how the Borg learn, which is part of the way they're so just kind of goofy. Like, the Queen is like, I don't care. You know, the Queen's like, well, I'm going to observe this, and let's just watch and see what happens. You know, they're trying to... They can't learn without assimilating. They adapt, but that's kind of pulling from existing algorithms. I'm not entirely sure the Borg are... The Borg are not exactly, like, tactile. They're not going on Coursera to figure anything out, right? They're just, like, if they can't absorb it, if they can't 
if they can't ingest it directly into the nanobots, it's not getting through to them, which is... And I think they also have this massive store. One of the things that pops up in this episode is that the Voyager crew is learning all these tricks from the Hansons about bio-dampeners and reflective shields and all this kind of stuff. And it takes the Borg a minute to remember. And it's yeah. like... It's partially <laughs> like the weapons re... Um, you know, the weapons adapting too. It's like, you would think they'd have all of these algorithms and all these frequencies stored, but no, it's like, oh, right. Gotta pull up that file. We know how to adapt to that. So it's interesting to think there's like a lag in the hive mind. Um, they clearly aren't working with solid state drives. They're still working on like um, spinning disks. Right. And it's all from a far off location. And Yeah. Subspace, subspace lag is hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. High my, my ping is off just a <laughs> hair of a second. Yep. Those cubes don't have great uh, Wi-Fi. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, one thing I think is really cool, though, that uh, we have all gushed about is having green laser lights follow you wherever you walk is really, really cool. And I think we should all install them in our homes to be our own personal board queen. Yeah, it's like she's just like Lady Gagaing it all over the place. Like <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I would if I could have green laser beams follow me everywhere, I would. Correct. 100%. 100% all the time. Well, and it's like 7 is always like lit in the orange. Mm. Even even when they're like inches from each other's face, you know, and you can really cut the sexual tension with a knife, right? Like, they're still lit so well. She is always, the Borg Queen is always green. Seven is always orange. So the Borg don't hire graphic designers, but they have a really top-notch lighting crew? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Correct. Correct. Lighting is art. Design is not. (laughs) I will fight anybody who says that, by the way. Design is art. I will take that to my grave. The uh, the Borg are noted for their acquisition of theater techies, right. but not <laughs> yes. but not the arts room. So um, that's why they're because, so theatric, right? The the techies are clearly you know uh, perfection to add to the collective, whereas you know the the art school students are are just like nah, we we know how to make a latte. Yeah. How much power boost do you think the Borg are going to get when they finally assimilate a few computer programmers? Oh, it's just gonna be incredible. <laughs> yeah. Once I they mean, start once they start running on Python, it's just Yeah, yeah. Be... I mean <laughs> once they get a few people that actually know anything about network security in there, they are gonna be unstoppable. <laughs> it is so funny how the Borg are just completely walked all over. Like in, in when they in, in infiltrate the sphere, it's just like we beamed in, we blew up some stuff, we stole a coil, we beamed out. It worked out pretty well. It's it's so funny. I like it in the first episode where they're just like endlessly running the drill where it's like, okay, you have two minutes. We got to get it down. We got to get it down. We got to get it down. Oh, two minutes, 12 seconds, two minutes, 11 seconds. Yeah. It's like that sequence in uh, what is that? Fast five. Where right. They're driving the cars and trying to escape the cameras. <laughs> yeah. And they're just trying to figure it out, trying to figure it out. But, oh no, the answer was in the Hanson's logs all along. But the real mastermind with all of the plans in this is our favorite crew member on Voyager, Naomi Wildman. Mm. She's the best. Mm-hmm. I love Naomi. She is so good. And honestly, she is my favorite part when Evan 
whenever there is a Seven of Nine episode. She shows up at Janeway's ready room, escorted by Tuvok, who's like, there's a member of the crew who wishes to speak with you. And she's like, I don't have time for that shit. And she's like, ah, it's Naomi. And so she lets her in and she gives her some uh, solid advice about leadership. And, and what was it? Always keep your shirt tucked in. Always go down with the ship. And never leave a crewman behind. Yep. And then Naomi Wildman's like, that's nice. Here's my 10-page proposal of how we, like, <laughs> divert power from the main deflector to attune to Seven's, like, optical implant. And Janeway's like, huh. Awesome. Yeah. Not bad. Well, thanks, Not Naomi. Bad. <laughs> it's so good. She's I love so Naomi. great. She is awesome and great. And I think having her ground seven in a way that like none of the adult members of the crew can do but she grounds janeway in that moment Mm -hmm. well in that moment like if the only adult that you have to look up to on this goddamn starship in the sky is janeway like that's the kind of kid that is going to be raised on the ship right that's amazing who are who are your major role models well not my mom because she's always in engineering but my crazy um mostly insane captain and my non-feeling <laughs> Borg friend seven of nine also <laughs> Neelix like, <laughs> I, I want there is a fun episode where they do the the time thing and see you know adult Naomi uh, which is pretty cute and and endearing but I I so want to see you know Naomi Wildman I want a short trek with Naomi Wildman that's just yes. all I want I, that would be fantastic and amazing and awesome naomi wildman best character on the show naomi wildman i want to see like you know the grown-up au where like she and macaulay culkin from home alone have to like defend earth from an invasion (laughs) and they just pull it off all the time and it's awesome and they do it with like paint cans and screwdrivers and like hollow emitters and it's good they put like (laughs) like a soldering iron on the moon to make it really hot for when stuff (laughs) tries to come through <laughs> yes. Oh, that is fantastic. Put some jacks in the, in the asteroid belt so that stuff trips on it. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So I think that pretty much wraps up like this two-parter. Caitlin, do you have any closing thoughts? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of the episode. We, 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 didn't, talk we didn't talk about the episode, episode at all. <laughs> Do we, we talked do about we need, I mean, episode ten. We like got time. Actual... We've got time. We can we do, can nail this. Like... Yeah. Do we need like an actual thirty second recap of what actually happens in this episode? Because we've talked about I think nothing. So. <laughs> I think I think we do. I think Brian's jumping the gun here. We got time. Yeah. We... Well, my biggest disappointment is at one point, Janeway is like, "All right, so the plan is we're going to steal a transwarp coil to shave some time off our journey. We're going to do it by salvaging Borg parts." How do you successfully plan a heist? And at one point she says that Ferengi tried to break into Fort Knox to steal all the gold bullion from Earth. And we've never heard about it since. And that just disappoints me. Maybe they didn't make it that far. Maybe it's not a very good story. I want the historical holodeck adventure where they try. Yes. Right. That would be great. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think there's, like, much else to say about this episode. Like, it's just, like, Seven of Nine, like, oh, I don't want to assimilate things. I don't want to be aboard. Why am I here? And then Janeway comes in and saves the day. I, I feel like it's clean cut. So, you know? I mean, 
I feel like you're short-selling the episode a little bit, Ryan. I think there's a lot more going on here. We've got the entire dichotomy between, like... So the the entire time I've been gushing about the Federation's attempt at, like, hey, if we all worked together and if we tried to piece stuff together and not compete with each other all the time, imagine what we could accomplish. Imagine what we could be. And then the Borg are over there like, hello. We're like, no, not like that. Please not like that. (laughs) And Seven of Nine's entire, right, like at the beginning of the episode, what does she tell Janeway? Voyager is my collective now. Well, wait a minute. We don't want Voyager to be a collective. Because we know what happens when we shut out dissent, when we shut out other opinions, we get real stupid. That's one of the big issues with the Borg. They're kind of stupid. And so there's this entire reflection throughout this episode of not just Seven of Nine going, oh, do I want to be assimilated or not? I don't know. It's more about, I want to work together with my crewmates. I want to be this collaborative force, but I also want to maintain my individuality. I want to be my own person. I can't imagine anything more impactful or direct on 21st century living. All right. No, I, I, I get it. Like individuality is something that, you know, I think specifically like us as Americans, I know we have, a bunch of really great, awesome friends on this show that are not American. Um, and sometimes I am grateful for that. But, but all are predominantly like Western individual based ideals. Right, right. And I think, you know, like collectivism versus individuality is, you know, tale as old as time on that one. But like, I, mm, I get it what you're saying, like working together is something that Seven wants, but, you know, she wants to accomplish that as an individual with other individuals. And I think, like, that whole, like, individuality is our strength and everything like that. Mm. That is just, like, an overarching theme of Star Trek in this shit. Absolutely, but this is one of the episodes that does it the best. Okay. Alright. Alright, I see what you're throwing down. I see what you're I mean, I think down. the inherent trust that humans have to have with each other because they are not of one mind, so that when individuals choose to work together, I think it's it's more meaningful with them when you have the hive just kind of going, we do the thing, we do the thing, yeah. we all agree, yeah, there's yeah. no room to not do the thing. Yeah. And so that's why it's it's so incredible when individuals do come together and accomplish great things. Yeah, it's, right, hard yeah. To, it's more fraught with danger, but it's absolutely worth it. Yeah, the hive isn't collaborating by you know option or choice right. or or anything like that the hive is an agglomeration of experiences and knowledge and filtered through some kind of queen algorithm whereas like organic individual collaboration is actually a creative and free exchange of ideas and not like that but we do it in the form of a heist which typically from hollywood like the heist type movie is all about the kind of the backstabbing and the wheeling and dealing and the behind the scenes treachery that goes along with a band of criminals. Sandwich eating. Sandwich eating. Yeah, in in most heist movies, I don't know if you've noticed that. There's always one guy who's always eating. Oh, I haven't noticed. That. I don't watch too many heist movies. <laughs> no, it, it's 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 a real thing. It's stupid, but okay. it's a real thing. Did so, that? Did. Where did that start? Did that start in Ocean's Eleven when Dean Martin is always yeah. eating? Okay, that's what I yeah. figured. Yeah, because Brad Brad Pitt does that so well in the rebooted Ocean's Eleven that everyone thinks right. it's him, but that's actually a Dean Martin thing. Well, and then you've got Han in the Fast and the Furious movies who's always snacking, and then you've Big got Taurus Energy. 
Daniel Craig and Logan Lucky is always yep. eating. Like, Chakotay's not always eating. Chakotay should be always eating. He should Chakotay be. He's should got the face for it. But, so, in this one, though, like, you've got that idea, right? The heist. So, like, there's, like, the, the pit of vipers kind of thing. But the pit of vipers is actually what we're breaking into. It's kind of a reverse on the heist trope. It's actually pretty clever. I mean, if Andy Garcia played the Borg Queen, it would be kind of incredible. And I would <laughs> totally watch that movie. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> just like Andy Garcia's head. Just with like low lowering with like the right. spine. Yeah, it would be amazing. I'd watch the shit out of that. Maybe this is the <laughs> unplanned, unknown, untitled Star Trek movie coming out in two years. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that movie's not happening. Yeah, come at me, Paramount. <laughs> No, they, they were like, oh, there's a new Star Trek movie. It's going to be out in two years. And then, like, an hour later, StarTrek.com put out a thing that like, was like, this is news to us. Yeah, there's a new Star Trek movie, guys. It's going to be out in two years. Yeah, it's it's going to be Star Trek The Captain Proton Chronicles. God, I, I hope not. I would watch that. Nope, I'd never watch it. I actually have a theory <laughs> on what that new Star Trek movie is. 100% Captain Proton, 100% of the time, subtitled, Captain Proton Rides Again subtitled Captain Proton is the best. Neelix colon Origins. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Tom Paris origin story. Oh, oh my god. No. I think they're gonna it's gonna be a reboot, a TNG reboot movie. Gross. Like I think Ugh. I think they're going to find like a young Captain Picard and it's going to be a continuation. Just of... cast Tom Hardy, but Tom Hardy now, <laughs> right? It's close enough. Straight off the straight off the set of uh, Venom Two, where he's gotten out of a lobster tank, being weird for the day, and they're like, "Now be British," and he'd be like, "Okay, I can do this." <laughs> yeah, everybody forgets Tom Hardy was Picard's clone in Nemesis. Yeah, it's like I love him as Bane, and I'm like, it's Tom, he was off the rails in Nemesis. It's guys. Tom Hardy in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. That's like my favorite bad Star Trek movie. <laughs> it's very bad. It's not good at all. See, we had so much to say about this episode that we immediately <laughs> talked about Nemesis. Yeah, I tried really hard, but you know, it's <laughs> no, no. I think I think it's good. Like I, the question of like collectivism versus individuality i i think this is a very good example of that but like eh, i mean yeah it's it's good and it's fine i think you know the board are so diluted it's really hard to say you you kind of almost need a face to them you need the board queen in order to for lack of better terming personify it you know you can't just have collective 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 drone 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 you need you need a central villain and i think that plays into it because not only that you also need somebody for seven of nine to talk to about this stuff yeah so i think that this is one of the places where i break with like the entirety of sci-fi fandom i hated that they put a face on the borg as the borg queen i really would have preferred just borg 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 nameless entity drone 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 we are the borg I think it's so much more interesting from like a sci-fi perspective, but I totally get why fans are, that are like watching this show eventually it's like oh, okay, we get it, right? We know what's going to happen here, and I do like the idea that Seven of Nine really does need somebody to have these conversations with, and nobody else is really gonna gonna understand, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Except for Chakotay, maybe. 
did you say except for Chicote? Yeah, of course. Chicote would understand totally. Of course, yes, <laughs> naturally. He has he, he's the ship's counselor right. at this point. Uh and that was that was something that came up while Katie and I was watching. Uh Katie and I were watching was, you know, who's the counselor on this ship? That's a terrible question to ask. Yeah, no, I I I totally get where you're coming from. I think that the Borg Queen changed the the Borg Queen more than Voyager. More than all of Voyager's mucking around with the Borg changed the way we think about the Borg. And I would I would have liked to see the Borg you know, there's a there's a kind of pure insect, or maybe not insect, but a pure you know cybernetic Borg out there. There's that would be interesting to kind of imagine. You know, like they were descended from a probe who was uh, programmed to only seek all that is knowable. I would agree with that, but like how I I understand what you're saying, Michael. Like with it, like oh, I don't like it and everything like that. But how do you do it without getting like the Matrix? Where it's just like a big robot, you know, like like. Um, my immediate answer is ultra intelligent ancient AI. Okay, okay. Like well, I, I can get down on that. The preepers, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it it's big Mass Effect vibes. That's for damn sure. Well, I think that kind of like ties it in a nice little bow. Caitlin, do you have any closing thoughts for real this time? I think. My answer to my own question is I'd rather fight one giant Borg because then you could um, get some get some rope around their legs like an ATAT and knock it over. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. one giant Borg instead of ten children-sized Borg. Ten Dakota Fanning-sized Borg. Yes, Dakota Fanning is not about... like nine anymore, though. She's like... She's a full-grown no, adult, forever. okay? She's nine forever, okay. Michael, one giant Borg, ten Borg-sized, always nine-year-old Dakota Fannings. Uh, and what am I doing to these Borg? Fighting them. (laughs) I guess I would try to fight the big one, because then I have this idea that I could somehow, like, break it into pieces and then form it back together in, like, a Megatron-style robot that I could pilot around. Mm. Oh, that would be cool. Fair enough. Forest? I I think that uh, I'd have to say that, well, actually, so I'm going to pose a counter question. Would you rather fight one giant Borg or eight Dakota fanning size Borgs fused into one Borg? <laughs> oh, into the fusion I yeah, changed the my fusion answer Borg. into the fusion Do you call that a hyper fanning? Yes, a hyper fanning. Yeah, it's a hyper fanning. I'll take the hyper fanning. Yeah, I want to fight the hyper fanning too because yes, it's absolutely. cheating forest. That's cheating. The, the the option was a million Dakota Fannings, and then you said, oh, what if instead of fighting a million, I fought eight? A, a million you can also fuse, so then there's just more dimensions to yeah, fuse Yeah, exactly. So you just decided so, to give yourself fewer I, I Dakota Fanning. I imagine that the hyper fanning looks like the, uh, like the zombie rat queens from Train to Busan. <laughs> like, just to start to meld into one giant rolling, like, Katamari de Marcy zombie ball. Right. No, yeah, that's exactly it. Like the, like a biblical angel, many eyes and wings and, uh, fire. And when you put your eyes upon them, you turn into flame. So that's what I'm choosing. Yeah. And just beautiful golden... Wavy locks, because you gotta have some Dakota fan. Correct. That's primarily yes. That's what turns you into flame. 
and like bright blue eyes. Yes. And bright blue See, eyes. Now you're all <laughs> cheating. So many eyes. Again, the flame. This. Where else are you getting the flame? I'm really concerned with your lack of understanding of where the flame comes from. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us <laughs> on this lovely board-filled adventure. As always, you can follow us online at Two Star Two Track on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> Next week, we will be discussing Equinox. Yeah, it's still Voyager. It's still Voyager. Yikes! <sighs> and as always, to be continued.